Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast today is June 11th. It's Friday and I am joined by my favorite French-Canadian, Simon Belanger. How you doing? And uh, tell me about this Bitcoin conference in in, uh, in Miami that just happened. There was a couple cool takeaways. I did like the interview as a side note with Jack Dorsey. He had some really interesting things to say. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge Bitcoiner. I'm 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 like a medium, and uh, you're you're much more involved in the space. And some really interesting takeaways came out of a bunch of nerds meeting in Miami. What happened with uh, one of the countries? Yeah, some really big news when it came to Bitcoin. The highlight of the conference was El Salvador Salvador coming out and announcing that they would bring forward a legislation that would make Bitcoin legal tender in their country along with the U.S. dollar. So the announcement was made uh, last week, if I remember correctly, and then earlier this week, they actually went ahead with it. It was passed uh, by their legislative assembly. They became the first country to have Bitcoin as legal tender in the world. Obviously, they're still keeping the U.S. dollar as legal tender. They have some mechanism in place that will allow merchants to be able to exchange it right away if they wish to accept Bitcoin and then translate it or exchange it right away to U.S. dollars. It's not a big country, so a lot of people are saying it's a big deal for nothing. I think there are approximately 7 million people in El Salvador. And without getting into the whole politics and polit- political climate of the country, I mean, it is it is some big news because it's the first country to do so. And they one of their big reasons is that they find that they're too reliant on the actions of the Fed and the U.S. and the currency. So that's why they decided to adopt Bitcoin. And they have some very progressive uh, programs to allow all the residents to be able to access uh, Bitcoin and be able to transact with it without going into too much detail. Personally, I think it will probably be one of many countries. We'll probably see a lot more countries that have been affected by hyperinflation. And when I say hyperinflation, I think you understand what I mean, right, Braden? I'm not talking like 5% here. I'm talking people seeing the value of their money drop by half in a year because their currency is being devalued at such a rapid pace. So it's logic for a lot of these countries to follow in the footsteps of El Salvador It'll be really interested to see what happens with it. But uh, personally, I think it's some really big news. Um, it'll be really interested to see if there is more countries that follow suit in the next year or two. Yeah, well put. And this is a stock investing podcast primarily. But, but you know, we, t- we touch on these things because if you're not paying attention to something as interesting as a global digital currency... It, it's worth paying attention to, is my personal opinion. It, it is worth paying attention to, whether you're a believer or a skeptic. Um, it doesn't matter. I think it's worth paying attention to. All right, what's happening with energy here in Canada? There's a big, uh, big annou- fairly big announcement. Yeah, so our listeners out west will probably be very well versed on what happened earlier this week. 
Um, so the TC Energy, the company behind uh, the Keystone Energy Pipeline, decided to go ahead and cancel the project. It's been there's been it's been going on for years. They've had a lot yeah. of yeah regulatory hurdles, protests, different governments being for it, against it, vice versa. I think it's been going on close to ten years, if not more. And uh, they decided that it just was not. Um, worth going forward with the project anymore after consulting with the Albertan government. Um, so it was not personally a big surprise because I know there was a lot going on. And when you see something that takes so much time and is so extensive in resources, at some point the company will just say like, you know what, screw this. We're just going to pull the plug. It's not worth our time and energy. Just think about all the legal fees, for example, that they had to go through, all the money that they spent on this that'll pretty much be wasted. I'm not I'm not feeling bad for them in any way, shape or form. Um, I'm sure, you know, they'll be just fine. But as a a business decision, in my mind, just seeing the hurdles, especially with the, the Biden administration in the states that we're seeing, and also in Canada, seeing provincial governments and the federal governments being more and more environmentally friendly, I think it was just a matter of time before this was going to get canceled. It's been dragging on and on. So at least there's some clear direction from TC themselves. Yeah, we saw um, uh, let's, Kinder Morgan to pull the plug, remember, with the, uh, yeah, the mountain, the Trans yeah. Mountain Pipeline. I think the federal government jumped in, offered them uh, pretty much a buyout because they were close to doing the same thing, pulling the plug and just selling the assets. And then the federal government jumped in. That was a couple of years ago. Um, so that's why this decision to me comes as no surprise at all. Let's talk Canadian banking. Uh, the big banks have been basically forced to not raise dividends over the COVID period. And they are sitting on tons of excess capital. The largest lenders, the big six, are sitting on $40 billion, $40.5 billion in excess common equity tier one, referred to as CET1. God, banking is so confusing. All right, CET1 capital is a fund of securities that regulators require banks to set aside during periods of economic strength as a shock absorber in a potential financial crisis. So this is the Fed saying, hey, you got to have the war chest full at all times because the big banks are incredibly important to the Canadian economy. Like, let's not kid ourselves. So earnings are really solid for banks right now, really, really solid. Uh, and they're sitting on all this cash and they're going to be allowed to increase their dividends soon. I expect huge dividend increases and some potential M&A from the big banks. Uh, the war chest has exceeded that 11% CET1 capital ratio, what they have to sit at, and uh, in excess of $40.5 billion from the big banks. What are they going to do? Probably buyback stock, majorly increased dividends. Like I'm talking 15 plus percent uh, increases. This is just my estimations. Um, and TD has whispered on calls about potential M&A. So I don't know what that looks like, but if you are a Canadian investor, chances are you hold banks. 
I think it, things look pretty good for the big banks, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Tons of cash available. Yeah, they, they've been getting some flag, though. I've been reading quite a bit because they've been increasing their fees. They're increasing their uh, minimum balance for people and their checking accounts to avoid paying the the monthly fee. Um, so they have been getting some flag, but because, in part, they've had such good quarters and are pumping money hand over fist. It'll be interesting if there's any developments or if the feds kind of step in regarding those fees. But like you, I mean, it's... Uh, you're a bank shareholder you're probably a very happy uh, camper right now yeah especially when you own something like royal bank and the capital market segment just continues to get it done outside of that core retail banking segment so as we've mentioned before on we don't talk about banks a whole lot on this podcast considering it's the canadian investor podcast but overall i mean they all have their core retail banking segment and then it's like, what else? You know, what what are their other segments? What are the other growth opportunities? And they each have their own little thing. And uh, just just be aware of that and what kind of exposure you're looking for. Act appropriately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Braden said, they'll all have the retail. Make sure you know what they're exposed to in terms of their loans, and then what other types of uh, business they have because they're all a bit different. They're all a little different. They're all a little different. Let's switch gears. I want to so later in this episode because Canadian investors love dividend stocks like a little too much, and we're going to talk about dividends. Uh, we're going to have a whole, basically a whole segment. This whole episode is going to be about dividends, pretty much, which is great for income seekers. And uh, we have lots of hot takes around that, but we're, we'll get to that before we talk about that. I want to have a segment on something called anecdotal evidence. Now, what is anecdotal evidence? Anecdotal evidence is a factual claim relying on personal observation collected in a casual or non-systematic manner. So without the jargon, what does that mean? It's someone stating something as quote-unquote fact based on their own observations and when it says collected in a casual or non-systematic manner, meaning there isn't really any numbers to back it up and the narrative on the street might be counter to what's actually happening. Now, the best example of this that I can personally think of is Facebook, okay? Everyone and their dog will tell you that Facebook is dead Everyone they know is deleting Facebook. None of the Gen Zers use Facebook. Facebook is corrupt. I have this is an this is an example of anecdotal evidence. I go, Simon, what are you doing? Why are you investing in Facebook? My all my friends just deleted it. No one uses it. Okay, so that is me making a claim on personal observation collected in a non-scientific manner. That is a perfect example of anecdotal evidence. Now, if you look at the financial statements, there is a very different story being told. Facebook is growing revenues at over 40% per year. It is growing monthly. It is growing in every single segment that it tracks geographically. 
You're seeing huge growth in emerging markets. You're seeing Facebook continue to get it done. WhatsApp is the largest messaging platform in the world. And the core Facebook blue app continues to get it done. Not to mention all the investments in VR and the future and potential growth there. But you can see how the word on the street that I'm claiming as factual evidence and what is actually happening are completely different stories, completely different narratives. And anecdotal evidence should be avoided at absolutely all costs. There's just no place for it in investing. It is unfortunately using emotional or personal observation and stating it as fact. Now, let me be clear. If you are seeing in your life something interesting that could be an investable idea, or if you're seeing a company firsthand lose their moat and you have some insight on that, that's totally fair. That's completely fair. It's the difference between making a claim and a statement and the numbers telling a different story and the growth being so massive in other regions. It's just not really the case in terms of Facebook's business. So in that exact example, some, do you you have any other examples or personal experiences of, of anecdotal evidence, just not really telling the story correctly? I mean, it's uh, putting me on the spot a little bit, but I'm uh, I'm putting you in the hot seat right now. I mean, one, easy thing would be someone who starts seeing a lot of electric cars for example on the street thinking that gas station will be obsolete next year so obviously that eventually that will be the case in most likely a couple decades from now if not more but that kind of assumption would be very misleading to to say that fossil fuels are you know going to be gone tomorrow you know in the next five years yeah tomorrow yeah it's just very surface level analysis and uh, should be avoided at all costs. Really, at, at the end of the day, it's surface level analysis that needs more digging before decisions are made based on it. So that's anecdotal evidence. Try to avoid it. Uh, that's it for that segment. Yeah, yeah, it might pique your interest and that's fine. If you see some anecdotal evidence and you're like, oh, you know what? This is interesting. Just dig into it. It's a good reason to do more research. All right, dividends. Let's talk dividends. Before we get into some numbers and 10 dividend stocks that we would, you know, we, we can get behind. Before we do that, let's mention really quick. Let me just be clear. I, I'm, I'm trying to get my thoughts here. Do not ever, I mean seriously ever, and again, this is not investment advice, but do not buy a stock just for its dividend. I mean, like, can, can we say it in the louder for the people in the back? If you were to just buy companies because you like their dividend yield, you've probably done horrible. You've invested in value traps. And you, again, you've not done enough research on the company and the future of it. Buying a stock just for the dividend is a horrendous idea. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting paid dividends. I hold lots of dividend payers. I love dividends. You, know, you get paid by the companies you own. It's, it's fantastic. But 
let me be clear. Buying a stock just strictly for its dividend yield is goofy and should be avoided. All right, rant over. Simon, tell us a little bit about some of the numbers you look at when you're talking about dividends. Yeah, so dividends, here's a few concepts or ratios to, to keep in mind that really just apply to dividend stocks. Obviously, if they're not paying a dividend, these things won't, you know, they won't hold true. Uh, the first one we've mentioned a lot in previous episode, the payout ratio. There's different ways of looking at the payout ratio. You can look at it from the earnings perspective, from free cash flow perspective, Um Personally, I like the free cash flow perspective because it's really a good indicator of the money actually coming in and out of the business. And that will be a very good indicator of the sustainability of the dividend. Whereas earnings, we've talked about it before, earnings can be very lumpy and may not give you the real lipness test whether they're able to continue that or not. The second one is, like Braden said, dividend yield. Um, I won't go into too much detail. You said it correctly. The dividend yield is very simple. It's just the uh, the payment of the dividend that you're getting divided by the cost of one share. That'll give you the current yield. That'll vary on a day-to-day basis depending on the share price. And obviously, if the dividend goes up or down in terms of dollar amount, that will affect it. Be very wary of very high dividend yields. And that can vary by sector because if you have something that pays a 5% dividend that's in the tech space, that's a red flag right there. Whereas if you have something that pays 5% dividend yield in the utility space, that's pretty common just right there. So it may not be a red flag per se. And and the reason for that, when Simon's saying, you know, one's okay, one's not is think of how stable the cash flows are for a power utility year over year. You know, they're not going to have a huge drop in cash flow quarter over quarter and going to be paying a dividend that they can't afford. Uh, and, and then if they do that, then it leads to the first one, which will exceed a payout ratio that is not ideal, which means they're paying too much of net earnings or free cash flow, depending on how you calculate it, to pay that dividend, which is which is not ideal. So it goes down to how stable are the cash flows and more stable cash flows can afford higher yields. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yield on cost is another a term that you'll hear a lot. So the yield on cost is pretty simple, is the cost you paid for your shares and the current yield. So it, this could be five years later, you look back at the cost that you paid for your shares and then you compare it to the current dividend and then you'll get the current yield on cost. And that will, usually you want the dividend to increase over time. So your yield on cost will be higher and higher as you go, you move into the future. So that's just what yield on cost uh, means is that you're looking at the current dividend that you're receiving versus the price that you paid for your shares. The second one is the, uh, well, the fourth one is the payout frequency. Um, So the most common that you'll see is quarterly payouts. Um, Sometimes you'll see biannual payouts. Sometimes you'll see annual payouts. And sometimes you'll see monthly payouts. Uh, Monthly payouts, probably more common with REITs. I was going to say, REITs pay pretty commonly monthly yield. Exactly. But the most, I would say the most common one overall is a quarterly. Uh, That's the one you'll see the most often. Um, the next thing you'll want to keep an eye on is the dividend growth rate. And that's something we'll talk about when we talk about our picks. Um, you want to, 
as much as possible, you want the dividend to increase over time. Why? Especially if you're counting on that income, let's say you're a retiree. If that dividend increases 5%, 10% each year, well, your income actually keeps up with inflation or might even exceed it. The next one, these are more terms that you'll hear in the dividend space. So you'll hear dividend achievers, dividend aristocrats, dividend kings. So these are different levels of uh, companies that pay dividends. You, they'll typically be companies that will be paying dividend and increasing them for a certain period of time. Dividend achievers would be 10 plus years of dividend increases. So it's not just that they haven't they were consistent with having a dividend. They're actually increasing it on a year-to-year -year basis. Dividend aristocrat is a pretty select group. Those are actually, the definition is companies that are part of the S&P 500 and have increased their dividend over minimum of 25 years. I mean, personally, you can use it in non-S&P 500 if you wanna use that term just for fun, that's up to you. But the real definition is that. And the last one is kind of a very select group is dividend kings. So same as dividend aristocrats, but it's over 50 plus year period. The one asterisk I'll say for these two, specifically aristocrat and kings, is these tends to be a bit more legacy businesses. And one of the issues that you might see with those is they will tend to have much lower revenue growth. They'll be more stable, uh, but keep an eye on if they they innovate over time and they're not too susceptible to be disrupted because it's all nice and dandy that they've increased it over 25 or 50 years. But if they're not keeping up with the current landscape that, you know, the past doesn't necessarily mean anything for the future. Yeah, well put. And you'll see a lot of these legacy businesses, they'll just increase their dividend by it. Like, like a penny 20%. a share. <laughs> <Not even. laughs> yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll increase their dividend by like a penny a share and say, hey, look, uh, we're still getting it done. And you know what? A lot of them are fantastic businesses. I know any, any company that's been able to actually increase uh, a payout for over 25 years is probably a, a stellar business over time and uh, been able to defend their position. You know, you think of the Coca-Colas of the world type of businesses and uh, – what you got to look at is if the dividend growth rate is something you're actually looking for and and if it's if it's on the lower side i i would want you know a pretty good business and a fairly decent dividend yield so it it comes in as a bunch of trade-offs when you're looking at dividend growth versus uh dividend current yield just be more cautious on the second one cuz you could be buying a a value trap if it has a really high yield yeah and you want to also have uh like personally what i'll do when i look at the growth is i'll look five to ten years in the past max uh you know what they did 15 20 years ago if they've been increasing it probably not as relevant for you know the recent business so that's something else to keep in mind did you want to start Braden? yeah let's switch so we we've decided that we're going to do five dividend stocks each to put together like a, a, a solid 10 portfolio 10 stock portfolio of dividend payers. We'll go over why we think it's a decent business and what some of those numbers are, the yield, how fast the dividend's growing. We'll go over those. Again, there are lots of companies that could fit this bill. It is a fairly useful exercise to try to pick five 
each. And um, it's an interesting exercise in your portfolio as well to try to think of what would be your highest conviction names and probably weight them a little bit higher. And I think that's a, a fairly useful exercise. Again, this is absolutely just for information purposes. This this stock portfolio is not investment advice. Do your own due diligence. But uh, all right, I'll kick it off. So it should be really no shock to anyone if they listen to this podcast that I'm going to take Visa in this dividend portfolio. And you may be going, oh, D- Visa doesn't even hardly pay a dividend. And you're right. I mean, the, the dividend yield is 0.5%. So this is not going to make you a lot of income. However, they have been consecutively growing the dividend at around 15% a year. The three-year dividend growth is 14.86%. We'll call it 15%. They pay out as they grow cash flows over time. The payout ratio is super low. Uh, and the runway still for them to grow it over time is exceptional. So if you are an income seeker, Visa, if you bought Visa stock 10 years ago, your yield on cost, again, that's the dividend yield you'd be receiving based on your cost position way back when may be exceptional. So the yield might not be great now, but as they continue to grow it, your yield on cost may be exceptional. I think Visa is a perfect candidate of that. A lot of the companies we're listing here are good candidates of high yield on cost in the future because of that dividend growth. And I mean, Visa may be one of the best businesses on the entire planet. So I think it's worthy of being on this list. Yeah, it's a really good pick as a dividend stock. Obviously, it's a, it's a small yield right small now, yield. but who knows? Who knows what it'll be in uh, 10, 15 years from now, yield on costs. Uh, my first pick is Apple. Everyone knows about Apple. Right What's now, that? It's What's Apple? <laughs> I won't even answer that. Yeah, uh, so it's yielding 0.70%, not a huge yield as well. Um, to give you an idea why Apple is a good dividend stock, the revenue increase uh, 6% as a compound annual grade over the last five years. Their dividends compound annual grade over the fi- last five years is 9%, and they pay less than 20% of uh, their free cash flow, so there's a lot of room to grow. Uh, just look at Apple's financial statement. They're just making free cash flow hand over fist. It's crazy. Um, it's a steady business with increasing revenues. Um, they've been slowly going away from just relying solely on the iPhone as most of their revenue. So they're going more and more into a service business. That SaaS reoccurring revenue is starting to pick up more and more for Apple. Good thing for them, too, is they buy back shares regularly. Uh, they have very loyal consumers, super strong brand and marketing pricing power as we all know and they're well diversified and an innovative company as well coming out with uh, new products or new versions that people want to buy and they're really good at making these small acquisitions that go kind of under the radar and then you know some years later it's like oh yeah we paid like 100 million for that and then it's really fitting in well with their ecosystem it is the ecosystem we just did a report on on apple and we named the, the report the ecosystem because what you're talking about, all the services inside of the world of Apple now, is really making a big part of the business now. And it's paying off and it's making it really, really sticky. I mean, it's the largest company in market cap for a reason. And Yeah, uh, it's a two-sided it's a two ex- network company. effect. 
Yeah, it's a two-sided network effect too, right? Because you have so many consumers, which then makes it very attractive for developers to create apps and so on. So it's like a circle. That's why they can charge 30% commission on their app store. Because if you want eyeballs, if you want adoption to your app, you don't really have a choice. That and Android are the two main things out there. Yeah, good luck going somewhere else. That two-sided network effect is extremely powerful. Uh, both companies we've listed so far have extremely strong two-sided network effects with Visa and Apple. All right, I'm going to go with Equinix, ticker E-Q-I-X. Equinix is a real estate investment trust. It is a U.S.-listed business. It yields about 1.3% with about a 6% dividend growth rate year over year. They are the leaders in data centers. So if you run a data center, you're going to need to house it in one of these facilities. Equinix and D Digital Realty Trust are the two leaders. I like Equinix a little bit more. I know, Simon, you own both players, uh, which have done exceptional as of lately. You were buying them when they were cheap. I don't know why. I don't know why the market was discounting these. And it's one of those businesses that are really solid, have huge runway for growth with data centers. You know, the demand for data going up is maybe one of the most asymmetrical bets on the planet. The demand for data in the future is obviously has huge tailwinds. I mean, you don't have to be a equities analyst to, to come out with that hot take. I really like the business. It's structured well, it's managed well, and they're going to be able to capitalize on the, on the growth moving forward. And data centers is probably a decent place to play. And you know what? I think it's reasonably valued. It was really cheap like two, three months ago, but I still think it's reasonably valued. You're going to pay more than most real estate investment trusts because you're buying data centers and it has lots of secular tailwinds behind it but equinix is a great company and i think it deserves uh, a spot here um being a reit too is you know very focused on distributions aka dividends but they they're actually not called dividends for reits they're called distributions but it's the same it's the same thing you don't need to know the difference yeah exactly yeah no that's a great one i mean obviously i own it so happy you chose it my next one, um, another one that needs no introduction, Microsoft. It's currently yielding 0.87%. The reason why I picked Apple and Microsoft is I think it's important if you're looking for dividends to also have a diversified portfolio. It'll be harder to find some in the tech space, but these two, obviously, you get some exposure to that. So you, as well for, uh, like Braden mentioned, Equinix, it, you also have exposure to that. Uh, Microsoft, they've grown their revenues over the past five years at 13% annually. Uh, dividends have grown at 8% plus percent, uh, over the five years annually as well, so compound annual growth rate. Less than 35% payout ratio. They really have a very strong moat in the enterprise business. I mean, doesn't if anyone's with their employer, um, definitely they have to really, you know, they use most employers use some kind of Microsoft product, whether it's Microsoft Office or something else. Uh, so they have a really 
strong moat in that space. Um, it's a steady business with increasing and reoccurring revenues. So they've really switched over to the SaaS model very well. That started about uh, 10 years ago now. Uh, for example, they started switching over to Office 365 in 2011. Um, there's not much more to say aside from that. They also have some pricing power, maybe not as high as I would say a company like Apple, but uh, you can't really go wrong with Microsoft as a kind of set it and forget it uh, type of business. What an exceptional business Microsoft has become. The cloud business is very exciting. I think Azure is taking the most market share and Microsoft's distribution is king. I mean, we saw that with the launch of Microsoft Teams taking an absurd amount of, micro of uh, market share right out of the gate. And when it comes to tech, distribution is king. All right. Uh, another one very similar. It's a very similar thesis to Equinix, which is American Tower. American Tower is the largest tower owner so all of the 5G rolling out on their towers improves margins over time. And this business has been an incredible stock, like an absolutely absurdly incredible stock. If you were to look at some 13Fs on Chuck Aker, he's owned this thing forever. Really, really good business. Again, it is structured like a real estate investment trust. The providers pay to have their equipment on the towers to serve up cellular networks. Again, the demand for data is only going up. It is one of the easiest secular trends you can spot. And American Tower and Equinix are going to benefit from, from that, each with, with data centers and then with towers providing that network across the world. All right, well, mostly in, in America, as the name suggests, American Tower. It pays a 1.67% yield. It's growing at about 15% a year, that dividend. Again, this is a really solid business. Margins are going to improve. They're going to get more out of each tower as demand increases, and then the eventual rollout of new technologies as it comes. There'll be a 6G, there'll be a 7G. Data is only going to get better, and um, I think American Tower still has a long runway for growth, and they're going to continue to benefit from these uh, these trends over time. Yeah, yeah, it's a great business. I mean, you can really, someone who's looking for exposure in data REITs or cell towers, you can really could combine just a basket approach and do quite well. There's about like uh, kind of four names I can think of in that space. So DLR, Digital Realty, Equinix, American Tower Weave and the last one SBA 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 Communications yeah, SBA Comms. Uh, I think if you have a basket of those, you'll be you'll be just fine, in my opinion. Totally agreed, and I, I guess all four of them are structured as REITs. I I don't know if SBA is actually. I think so. I think it is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Don't okay. quote me on well, that. Well, they've but... all been incredible businesses <laughs> yeah. to own. They've all been such good stocks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So now on to my next one, another name that needs no introduction. Home Depot. Uh, so Home Depot is currently uh, yielding 2.14%, 7% plus 
compound annual growth rate for their revenue in the past five years. Their dividend has grown 20% over the past five years. Again, compound annual growth rate, less than 40% payout ratio. One of the asterisks here is keep in mind that they are dependent on the housing market to some extent. However, existing homeowners will need to go to Home Depot to repair their home. So they're, they're not as affected from a housing downturn than you'd have your traditional home builders, for example. And it gives you some exposure to that space as well. Very popular program with professional. They have a loyalty program that's extremely popular. Uh, professionals are very loyal, so they were. They started that several years ago. There's not too much expansion growth potential for new stores. So that is one of the other knocks on Home Depot because, I mean, I don't need to tell you this is not anecdotal evidence. Go anywhere, any big city, you'll see several Home Depot stores. And they'll be, because of that, they'll be mostly reliant on organic growth for their same store sales and increases in efficiency in terms of their profit. So keep that in mind. It's not going to be a super high growth business, but it's as good as it comes in terms of stable businesses. I've, I've owned Home Depot since uh, March of last year, so it's done quite well for me. I started a position. I wanted kind of stalwart in my dividends part of my portfolio. Home Depot fit that bill. Very happy shareholder. I do not intend on selling anytime soon. What an incredible story Home Depot has been. And the environment right now is obviously incredible for Home Depot right now. People are very interested in upgrading their homes. And they're able to pass off a lot of those costs uh, inflationary that we've seen in that space as well with the lumber prices and, and the others onto customers. So they're able to protect themselves from that. The distribution's incredible. The business continues to get it done. Yeah, Home Depot is probably one of the best retailers on the planet, if not, you know, in the conversation for mm -hmm. the best. As a quick side note, they've really improved their uh, pickup with the uh, curbside pickup. I went at the beginning of the pandemic. It was a bit of a crapshoot. Like it was not that well organized. Fair enough. It had just happened. I've been going recently and it's very efficient. Like the way they've set it up, like props to them. They've done a good job at improving it. Yeah, everyone had to react fairly quickly. And the ones who did it well and effectively right out of the gate last March were the ones that uh, were able to ride out some of the benefits from it over time uh let's switch to a canadian name cn rail the railways have I'm, i'll touch on the news with cn and you know kansas city after but when it comes to businesses with really high defensible positions what you're looking for in a name that is going to pay a dividend pay it for a long time and hopefully increase it for a long time the railroads are, you know, maybe type A example. It pays almost a 2% dividend yield, which is higher than usual based on my historical knowledge of that. And uh, it grows at around 10% a year, sometimes even up to 15% a year on the div growth with a fairly low payout ratio still. So long, long room for them to increase it over time. So if you look at the assets they own, they are a toll booth collection type of business over time with their railroad infrastructure. It has been generating 
profits for over a hundred years on those assets. And I would be shocked if they weren't in another hundred years from now. So long-term, very defensible position. You can't come in and disrupt the rails. It's very difficult to do. And uh, CN Rail is one of the bigger and best operators in, in the space. I'd be happy to own it here. I don't, but I'd be very happy to own it here. I think all of the worries around CN Rail and KC Southern's deal and the, the war happening with CP Rail is now priced in. I don't see any downside if the deal does or does not go through. It seems to be priced in all of the uh, the issues and the fees they'd have to pay and kind of the whole wild goose chase that's all been if the deal does not go through. Right now, CN Rail is still in a very attractive business. The infrastructure's been in the ground for a hundred. It'll be in the ground for another hundred, and it's a it's a phenomenal business. And it's uh, bought and sold on the TSX for all our Canadian listeners as well. Yeah, yeah, well put. And you know, if you own it, you have a little bit of drama to follow. So what's not to like? Yeah, who needs reality TV shows on Netflix when you got uh, CN and CP going at it? Yeah, exactly. Um, so my next choice uh, will be Telus. So it's not a company I own, but if I were to own a telecom in Canada, Telus would probably be it. Granted, I'd have to uh, study the business a bit more, but. From what I know, and at first glance, uh, kind of looking at their statements and so on, here are some takeaways. Revenue is growing, but it's definitely slowing since Telus is obviously a more mature business. Lots of investment in wireless infrastructure right now. That's not specific to Telus, though. You'll see the same thing for Bell or Rogers. Um, you'll see the same thing in the States as well with AT&T and some of the, the big carriers over there. The dividend has increased uh, 6% annually on average, so their compound annual growth rate over the past five years. Little side note, free cash flow will be volatile. So if you look at their financial statement, you'll see that free cash flow kind of goes up and down. That's because there's been a lot of massive investments recently. So, you know, keep that in mind when you look at it. It's not necessarily a red flag. It's more understanding what's going on. And one of the major reasons why I do enjoy TELUS is because they have a growing part of their business, which is TELUS Help. Still a very small segment from the figures I could see. It's around $150 million, maybe a little more than that in terms of revenue. So it's still a small portion, but there's a lot of growth there. They launched uh, not too long ago TELUS, uh, well, part of TELUS Help or Telemedicine offering as well so they have some financial resources uh, to back that up and telus health also is in the uh, kind of pharmacy not the pharmacy but uh, the script the health script which is without going into too much detail is part of the uh, prescription when people order that so i'm not super familiar with that part but i know they have a segment part of telus health again do your due diligence if you invest in telus but like all um like all the uh, telecoms, they do pay a pretty good dividend. Right now, it is 4.6% roughly. So you'll you'll get a good dividend, but again, you won't get a hugely growing business. But if I had to pick versus, between Dan, Bell, and Rogers, I'd probably go with Telus. 
Yeah, fair enough. It's an interesting thing, right? Because the Canadian large cap, big dividend yielders are like the telcos, banking, and energy. And when it comes to the telcos, they're very similar to what I was talking about with banks is they all have this core oligopoly. Their core business is an oligopoly with very stable cash flows, uh, very defensible positions. But where else can they flex optionality? And for Telus, it's them doing this health business. The other ones have their own things, but it's it's very similar to the banks. It's like, where can they also flex some optionality outside of their core oligopoly? Uh, so very similar in that nature, and they pay juicy fat dividends for those who are into that. All right, my last pick is Moody's Corporation. Moody's Corporation is in a duopoly with S&P Global, the same company that does administers the S&P 500, but Moody's Corporation is the largest raider of debt. If you are a bond issuer, if you are uh if if you're going to issue a bond, you need to get it rated by the rating agencies, Moody's and S&P. So only two names in town that are going to rate your bonds. And Moody's continues to benefit from that. I think there's a lot of tailwinds still, a lot of companies issuing debt at, I mean, why not? Money's so cheap, right? Uh, so that, that segment of the business is growing really solid. The other segment of the business, which is called Moody's Analytics, is doing exceptionally well. It's that high margin SaaS type business. Moody's is in one of those types of businesses that are so good, it's hard not to ignore. I own the stock. Uh, Buffett's owned it for a long time. It's been a long time Berkshire-owned business. It's an incredible business. The uh, What's the yield here? It's really small. I pay 0.66%, but they grow the div at about 10% a year. So it's one of those companies that, yeah, they're not. there's still so much upside and so much optionality they can flex over time that they're not going to pay a really high payout ratio. They want to retain a lot of that cash and invest it in the business. They have really high return on invested capital, so it would actually be a poor use of capital to increase the dividend more than they currently are. I like that from a business, and uh, I own Moody's here, and I probably will own it for a very long time. And it pays like a dividend 30% higher than Visa. So that's pretty good. It's pretty good. <laughs> 30% from nothing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my last one here. So um, people are probably saying like, oh, there's no Brookfield name. No, we're keeping that for, for my last pick. Uh, so Brookfield Infrastructure Partners. I could have picked uh, Renewable Partners, but I decided to go ahead with this one for a few different reasons. Yielding 3.67% right now. They've had amazing revenue over the past five years, so 30-plus percent compound annual growth rate in revenue. Dividend is has increased more than 6% uh, annually over the five last five years. And that's actually that's something I want to highlight because that's in line with what management has been forecasting each year. So they typically give a bracket. It will usually range between 5 and 9 or 10%. So it's right in there. And that's something I do like about Brookfield because when management says something, you can usually count on them uh, doing so. So that's like proof is in the pudding, as they say. 
next thing. Oh, you want to add yeah, something? Go, go. Okay. No, I'm, I got nothing. <laughs> so next thing is uh, that I want to highlight is if you look at the financial statements from uh, for Brookville Infrastructure Partners, BEP would be the same thing. The payout ratio might look a bit out of whack when you're looking at free cash flow. And that's because Brookfield, the way they do their business is they tend to recycle existing assets that they've extracted in their view the most value and they can get a very good price for and then use those funds in the following years to buy assets that they find undervalued. So they kind of do that over and over. You'll see that they tend to keep certain assets for a very, very long time or never touch them, but some of them they'll actually do that. So that's why you'll see that their free cash flow will vary quite a bit because if you're selling an asset that pays a lot, that gives you a lot of free cash flow on one year and you're not replacing it next, you know, the following year or the year after that, it may impact your free cash flow a little bit. So just keep that in mind. It's nothing to be worried about, but you will see their financial statements, specifically free cash flow kind of go up and down. Tends to have consistent revenue since it's infrastructure related. Uh, big tailwinds with governments right now investing huge amount of infrastructure. I don't know about you, Brayden, but it seems like every day almost there's news about the U.S. investing like just in tea. So it's always like, you know, one trillion here, one trillion there. Let's let's run another five trillion over here. It's like there's news. It sounds like every week about a trillion of dollars in investments and Canada's not you know doing the same obviously to lesser extent they're also investing a lot of infrastructure so i can only see a company like brookfield infrastructure partners uh benefit greatly from that yep and and brookfield asset management the one that actually has a lot of those funds for the pension funds to invest in the mothership uh, <laughs> the mothership yeah i mean yeah i mean owning any of the brookfield names makes a lot of sense here uh, you know what? I just wanted to, you heard me messing around with my mic. So I was trying to figure out what the names of these are, but I just looked it up and there are two dividend ETFs that I think are worthy looking at. If you don't want to own these 10 names and you want to just one and done it, or in this case, two ETFs, there's a one that's of us holdings, uh, called D grow D G R O from iShares owned by BlackRock. It uh, it's like eight basis points bought and sold on the on the New York Stock Exchange. The top ten holdings, which you'll find interesting because you just named like four of them, are Microsoft, Pfizer, Apple, Johnson and Johnson, J.P. Morgan Chase, Verizon, Procter and Gamble, Home Depot, Cisco, Merck and Co., and then another iShares, which is listed on the TSX of Canadian names. The top ten holdings are CIBC. Canadian Tire, Labrador Iron, Bank of Montreal, Royal Bank of Canada, TC Energy, Bell or BCE, Bank of Nova Scotia, TD Bank, and National Bank. So, I mean, to no shock, there you get like the big six banks in there. But, you know, they they fit the criteria. They pay a high yield, they grow the dividend, and the business is growing. I mean, what more could you ask for as an income seeker? You're uh, you're looking at a good, pretty good place there. So that ticker is XDV. 
the iShares Canadian Select Dividend Index. And Vanguard will have the exact same product. So before I get comments about that, what about this Vanguard product? Just buy whatever one has the lower management expense ratio, that MER number. You'll see it on the fact sheet. Again, iShares owned by BlackRock and Vanguard are providing like-for-like products. Don't sweat even a second of stress deciding which one you should pick between them. Uh, because they're basically the exact same product. They hold the same things. If you can buy one at a cheaper fee, you should do that. But if you're an ETFer, that is XDV on the TSX and DGrow on the New York Stock Exchange. Maybe at some point we can just do a full episode of different uh, dividend ETFs that people can look at. Because uh, I'm sure there's... Uh, well, Spoiler, I know there's I a ton thousand of, them. of yeah, them. Yeah, a ton of them with uh, yeah. different, obviously exposure for each of them that that's the one thing i would say whichever etf you're looking at make sure you look at those can like those top 10 holdings specifically especially if they represent a big portion of the total holdings because one thing that jumped out to me for the canadian one at no surprise probably to any of our listeners but it's very heavy energy and banking at least the u.s one there's more diversification in that obviously the yield is probably way higher for the canadian one because of those holding but again you're very concentrated um, to those sectors of the economy and specifically the canadian economy yeah well put try not to separate the fact that it's an etf with the actual core holdings of what makes up the fund but you're right i mean there's 394 holdings in the u.s listing one and uh 12 in the kidding oh, they don't do their fact sheets they don't do their fact sheets like for like on uh the canadian and u.s holding. it's saying that there's 10 holdings in this one but i don't think that's true it has to be a bit more. Uh, i was making i was doing like it was a joke when more. i said 12. no i like there's probably like 30 though like it's not it's not that much different they probably have some of the reits and uh and some more oil names probably other than that, I bet you not much different. Okay. Thank you so much for listening, guys. We get tons of questions about dividends, and I think it's worth talking about. You know, if, if you're an income seeker, which is totally cool, if your investment horizon is lower, if you're entering retirement, dividends are awesome. I love getting dividends. I would also like to restate the fact that if you are buying a stock just for the dividend yield, Pause, think for a second. That's probably not a solid thesis to own something, right? Simon, like it's just, it's not a good thesis start and finish. Yeah, this company pays a 6% yield. Think about it. That's awesome, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's not a good idea. You got to think of if you were to own a lot of those high yielders, you've just getting been getting smoked by the index probably right like you you own energy and telcos and uh you would have just getting gotten slaughtered by the s&p 500 made up of a lot of those big tech companies that continue to dominate so keep in mind that it may not be a good thesis to just own something for the dividend yield yeah yeah nothing more to add to that yeah, you're like, yeah, mic drop. All right, thanks for listening, guys. Appreciate it.
This has been the Canadian Investor Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at CDN underscore investing. That's Canadian underscore investing, but CDN. We'll see you guys next week. If you go to getstockmarket.com, you will see my model portfolios. We're actually coming up with one for dividend seekers, which is nice. Uh, that's going to be out this month as well. If you go to getstockmarket.com, we go to Stratosphere, you'll see it all there. You can get a free trial. Thank you so much for listening. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye. The Canadian investor is not to be taken as investment advice. Braden or Simone may own securities mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment decisions.